Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to welcome Helena Norbrook-Hodge to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Helena is founder and director of Local Futures, previously known as the International Society for Ecology and Culture. Local Futures is a non-profit organization dedicated to the revitalization of cultural and biological diversity and the strengthening of local communities and economies worldwide. Helena is a pioneer of the new economy movement. Through writing and public lectures, she has been promoting an economics of personal, social and ecological well-being for more than 30 years. So thank you very much, Helena, for taking the time to join me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I'm very glad to be here. So uh, I'd love to talk to you about the work you've been doing for many decades now uh, around, uh, I guess it's, it's, it's focused to some degree around the idea of localization now, which is, uh, I think, an idea which is very timely. Um, we've had uh, a number of decades or however you look at it longer of, of uh, globalization. Um, but could you maybe just talk a little bit about uh, local futures, how you uh, got involved in that organization, what's, and what, what are the ideas underlying that and s- some of the other work you're doing? Yeah, I basically got involved in it because I'd had very broad international experience. I grew up in several countries. I'm Swedish, English, German. I had become a linguist and I had lived in several European countries and also in America. And I had developed an interest, essentially, in a fascination in learning different languages and understanding different worldviews and cultures, ended up becoming a linguist. And then I was settled in Paris working as a linguist, and I was asked to go out to this unknown part of the world called Ladakh, or Little Tibet. And uh, I, I almost didn't go, because by that time I was about 30, and I had sort of traveled quite a lot and was quite happily settled in Paris. But in the end, it did sound rather interesting that this part of the world had been sealed off from the Western world, from the modern world. It lies high up on the Tibetan plateau, surrounded by the Himalayan mountains, snowed in for about eight months of the year. And this part of the world had, in the modern era, from the 40s until now, the mid-70s, had been protected by the Indian government um, from any outside uh, involvement. People weren't allowed to travel there, and this area was, all the borders were, were sealed off because on one side they had Chinese coming into Tibet and on the other side Pakistan. And suddenly this area was thrown open to the outside modern world, and I went out as part of a film team thinking I would be there for six weeks to help pick up a bit of the language and make this documentary about this remote, unknown Shangri-La, which actually is culturally Tibetan on the Tibetan plateau, but as I said, belonged to India. And in, yeah, almost immediately on arriving, I fell in love with this, the people and the landscape. I ended up staying, I ended up working on the language, and I became witness 
to a very, very dramatic economic shift as the area was open to economic development, to the outside modern world. It all came in from India, and so it was essentially the Western version of modernity, economic growth, development. And I personally witnessed how in a very short period, genuine poverty, unemployment, which had never existed, um, food shortages, um, and because of unemployment, local conflict arose essentially out of this mm, process called progress and economic growth. So very early on, having experienced this over a few years in Ladakh, I became a passionate proponent of a different economic model, one which was not based on top-down, centralized models of development, but one which actually started from the ground up, understood the vital importance of diversity, and essentially understood the fundamental principle of life, which is complexity, diversity, process, and and in order to adapt our man-made systems to life, we need more decentralized or localized economies. I became aware of that. Sorry? Yeah, so, I, so we, we need that, and I became aware of that and started trying to, you know, promote this view. So I've really been a very early pioneer of localization or decentralization, starting in the 70s. And out of that came various practical projects, demonstrating renewable energy as an alternative to fossil fuels and large centralized systems, so decentralized renewable energy. And that led to invitations to demonstrate these kinds of things in Bhutan, in Nepal, other parts of India. And that also led to uh, working in Bhutan over a five-year period. And all the time this was, you know, this experience uh, opened my eyes to the fact that tragically around the world governments were uh, continuing to and and in fact, with increased sort of ferocity, supporting a centralizing, globalizing economic path that was very destructive, both of the environment and of society. So our, our little organization, Local Futures, which has had a reach across the entire planet, um, has been you know, an early pioneer of critiquing the globalizing path and promoting a localizing path. You've been involved in this work for many, many decades now, Helena. I'm just wondering, what's on your mind? What worries you the most? You've watched the trajectory of, shall we say, some kind of a globalization, industrialization, uh, and, and, and worked on the ground in, in, in these, these countries. What, what is it that particularly at the moment keeps you awake? Well, what worries me most is the fact that I see less and less real understanding of what's going on on the ground. And I see big money funding the big ideas. And I, I think that the uh, environmental movement has been manipulated into treating you know, symptoms, dealing with symptoms, rather than understanding the big picture. 
So in a way, it gives me hope because I, I see an economic trajectory which is so destructive of the livelihoods of the vast majority of humanity. And I'm talking about the middle classes. I'm talking about middle classes even in Beijing and Mumbai who in a very short period are realizing how empty, how hard and, and competitive the modern job world is, how alienated they are from their families and, their, and from nature. So there's already sort of a thirst developing even within the third world among people who've sort of arrived, you know, sort of at the pinnacle of success. And I, I think um, the, the hope is that people will wake up to the bigger picture, that there will be a way in which we can disseminate. Sorry, is that... Would it, yeah, we've got to get rid of that. You just say a, a way we can disseminate. Just repeat that, yeah. Yeah, a way in which we can disseminate a clearer, big picture about what's actually going on, that in the name of progress and growth, governments are actually promoting a path that is making larger and larger sections of society poorer. Now, poorer means you're having to work harder just to stay in place, just to pay for your house, a roof over your head, pay for your food, pay for what's now become essential in terms of education and training and medical care. To just cover those costs, you are having to work longer and longer hours. In a way, people know this, but in another way, you know, the voices are not there spelling out how and why is this happening? What yes. is going on? Yes. So I believe that the frightening thing is the covering up of that big picture, the difficulty of disseminating an understanding that is real and true and that's based on real experience across the boundary, particularly of industrialized versus so-called less developed or less industrialized countries. Yes. yes. So um, disseminating that information is difficult, but I believe that it is a, that, you know, there is an increasing willingness now to question the dominant path. And so my big hope is that disseminating this information um, can and will happen and that we could see very dramatic change in, in the opposite direction from where we're going now. And can I also say, I guess, as part of that, the biggest issue in terms of information that worries me is the faith in... Um, AI and high tech among many of the members of the new economy movement. Yes, yes. The new economy movement uh, tends to be dominated by men, and I'm trying to encourage more women to get involved and more land-based peoples who yeah. tend to shy away from thinking about the, the economic system. So yes. I think uh, they're very vulnerable and naive to to ongoing propaganda in that direction. That's very worrying. Fantastic. Get that picture. Um, and very timely, as you say, to watch this uh, all unfold in, in Ladakh. Um, now, I mean, the market economy, I guess, uh, or markets, market economy has been around for hundreds of years. What was it, do you think, that was distinct about this version that, that, that changed things in Ladakh? That, that you saw so dramatically? 
they, what made Ladakh and Bhutan, where I had these particularly eye-opening experiences distinct, was that these were few, very few pockets of cultures and economies that had not been affected by the genocide, slavery, and later colonialism that had been imposed across the world by, by European powers. They, and that meant that they had not been forced away from producing a range of things for their own needs into producing monocultures for export. You know, they've been not been shifted onto giant cotton plantations or tea plantations or coffee plantations. Um, and, and they had not been forcefully subjected to a process of centralized control that robbed them of their own local knowledge systems about their own resources, their own social systems of interdependence and managing their own resources. And that's why, you know, they were relatively healthy. They were, you know, poverty as we see it in the so-called third world simply didn't exist. A very uh, rich area and you've covered a lot of ground there. I just wonder at the heart of this uh, idea, to what extent is this an idea for the status quo, for not having economic development? You're talking about cultures that may have, you know, been unchanged fundamentally with respect at least to the, the, the market and the you know, supply of food and goods and so forth for maybe, you know, hundreds of years. Um, at the heart of this, is, is, is there a suggestion that actually they, they, were, they were better off in, in, in that, even though they mightn't have the benefits of modern medicine or some of the benefits of, of technologies and so forth, is there some kind of, I'm saying nostalgia underlying this for a way of being in the world? Well, you see, in my case, I ended up living in this culture and I ended up, and it, it took me many years actually to really have my eyes open to how incredibly... I've definitely always been in the middle of the harvest season when you have to worry about snow suddenly falling and if you don't get your crop in, it could be a bit of a disaster. Even in that period, people were working at this incredibly relaxed pace. They had support networks so that there were... Essentially, I would talk about it now as an ideal relationship between labor and land. So there were plenty of hands to do the work. And so it proceeded at this leisurely pace, literally singing, and and different songs for different aspects of the harvest and, you know, whistling while they were winnowing. I mean, it was, yeah, it was remarkable. And yet it took me years to really deeply comprehend what was happening because I was there for many years and I still intellectually assumed, well, it's pretty hard when you have to do so much physical work. And, you know, then I had this unusual situation once where I was with some local people during harvest out in the field and some Western tourists came by and the Western tourists were sort of rushing by and taking photos. And afterwards, the Ladakhi said to me, why are the Westerners always in such a hurry? And that was like this huge aha experience. So I said, you know, it had never been really conscious to me before that, 
how remarkable it was that even during the harvest season that the Ladakis were never in a hurry. And again, it took me a long, long time to really feel and understand what a gift it is not, you know, basically to be able to live at what I would now call is a human pace, is an ecological pace, is what we need as human beings to flourish. It takes time to nurture. It takes time to look after children, to look after animals, to look after the aged, to look after ourselves. Um, but, you know, other things, you know, added to that, like the fact that this work that looked so hard actually involved using your body and moving in ways that we're beginning to understand. You know, I don't know if you've seen in holistic medicine now, but they're telling us, you know, you know, sitting at a desk is just terrible for you, you know, so if you are in front of your computer, at least stand up every 20 minutes. And this is just, you know, it's this tiny window into what I hope could eventually lead to us waking up. I remember that, you know, it took me many, many years to realize that what a gift it is not only to have so much time, but to be able to actually use our bodies, which we, looking from afar, we say, oh, it's terrible, they have to carry water, or they've got to use their arms and legs, and, and we've been trained to see this as such a terrible hardship. Now people are actually becoming aware that it's a hardship sitting in front of a computer all day and more and more doctors are telling us, you know, you better get up and 20, every 20 minutes. Don't sit there because it's the worst thing for your back. It's the worst thing for your health. It's really bad for your mental health. Moving, using our bodies is not necessarily hardship. And I'm, of course, again talking about a situation which was you know, consisted of reaping the rewards of a given population over hundreds of years, developing a way of living in a particular place. And it wasn't perfect, absolutely not perfect. But I would say my experience is such that if I had to choose between being reborn in Sweden where I grew up or reborn in traditional Ladakh, I would definitely choose traditional Ladakh. Now, this part of the world is is uh, well known uh, for for being uh, the source of Shangri La ideas of Shangri La. To what extent are you saying that this was something unique and very distinctive to a particular culture at a particular time? So the Ladakhis, their culture, their way of being, and to what extent have you been able to identify? a few key features that uh, enabled this kind of uh, life? I've definitely identified key elements which I now see being implemented in the, if you like, postmodern, post-development world. And they have to do with more human-scale, interdependent communities and economies with deeper connection to the land, to their local resources. And that's sort of the formula that the process of localization encourages. Uh, and so I think that the fundamentals of what I experienced in Ladakh, which, you know, did not create some perfect utopia, but created more harmonious, sustainable relationships between people and between them and their natural resources, that basic formula 
as I say again, uh, involves more human scale, uh, interdependent economic and social units. It involves uh, a, a more time to comprehend and understand the world on which we depend so that in the modern economy, we don't realize that we become almost like puppets on a string where we're being pulled further and further away from the natural world on which we depend, the natural world which is the economy, the real economy. We're being pulled further and further away from some kind of human connection or interdependence with the people on which we ultimately depend. But now it goes via enormous institutions with government being the first sort of interface, but behind that, enormous global businesses where we never know the people inside, we don't have an understanding or a view of forces that affect us profoundly. So fundamental to, you know, to the, to the, well, the principle that is fundamental for our well-being is understanding that we need much more experiential knowledge. We need more direct relationships with the people and the natural resources, the plants, the animals, the water, the soil on which we depend um, in order for us to become more humble in the face of the complexity, process, and diversity of the living world, of the economy on which we all depend. So, so basically what, I, what we need to encourage is a fundamental shift in our educational and scientific world towards much more holistic, interdisciplinary knowledge that is more place-based. And we need to encourage smaller units, a multitude of smaller farms, smaller systems for, for fishery, for forestry, more adapted you know, to the living diversity. I mean, if I can give you a concrete example, I just recently learned from an architect friend in England that he was out rescuing oak beams, you know, oak trees of about two, at least two or three foot in di diameter. These oak trees are being clear cut and turned into chips. Why? Because the monocultural large scale techno systems on which we now depend via giant corporations cannot deal with the diversity. Uh, and I can give you countless examples of what this means in farming, where, you know, the apples that are too small are simply burnt or thrown away because they don't fit the machinery, they don't fit the supermarket shelves. It's an absolute disaster what's happening because of large scale and, and ignorance of what we're actually inflicting on ourselves and on the living world. Yes, well, you, you've, you put your finger on um, a number of really interesting uh, points there, which I'd like uh, to talk about, uh, uh, particularly the idea of scale um, a, a little bit uh, later, hopefully. Um, I, I guess part of this is, is why they call it kind of Fordist mass, cult, mass, mass consumption, mass, mass manufacturing world where, you know, large factories and, 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 and so forth churning out masses of similar kinds of products and so forth. 
and 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 some people believe that that's an era that's that's behind us now and we're moving into a much more um i don't know what they what they call it uh individualized but you know you have these new technologies that are going to basically allow just in time local production of all kinds of things so this idea of um, you know massive centralized factories and huge scale production is is maybe that idea is is out of date in, in and and where we're going now is is this this other vision of a you know of, of bringing together technology and and a more widespread network distributed kind of model yes this is uh, for me, what's very, very frightening is that whether it's in science, where the language has been of interdisciplinary, systemic, holistic knowledge linked to genuine sustainability, whether it's now with technology, as you say, exactly this idea, we're moving away from large-scale, centralized, polluting industry towards this completely new approach, if you look at the reality, these the the march of highly overspecialized reductionist knowledge linked to mega technologies, which in turn are funded by the inventions involve multi-billion-dollar investments from enormous monopolies that are whether they're developing genetic engineering to be used in agriculture in health. Uh, or in building materials, whether they're developing new robotized um, AI technologies. All of the inventions have involved humongous investment with the idea that you're going to get more out than you put in. So we're, we're allowing the for-profit motive to shape not just the technologies, but to shape what goes on at universities, what even goes on now in the school books in terms of training. So we're in a very frightening situation because we basically have a lot of propaganda, a lot of language about how we've moved towards this much more ecological, much more socially conscious, much more egalitarian way of doing things. But in actual fact, what's happening in the real world is the opposite. And maybe to make it more concrete also, I think um, very clearly what was happening in the early stages of this later, you know, globalization in a way, something that's gone on for hundreds of years, but in the mid 80s, when the term globalization was actually promoted by big business, and then it was promoted by government leaders and a lot, you know, along with the pressure from big business, the whole idea was we were moving into this new post-industrial information technology world where we didn't need to have the filthy, dirty, heavy industry. What was marketed was that in this new information society, we wouldn't have to fight wars over heavy industry and, you know, your minerals and my minerals. No, because now in the information society – my information could be your information instantaneously across the world. And this new computer-based information society was egalitarian and clean and non-industrial. It was post-industrial. Now, what was actually happening is that exactly at that time, large, dirty industry from the industrialized world was moving across the world to so-called poor countries, 
China, India, uh, countries in Africa. And the industries were becoming larger, more exploitative, more polluting than ever. But because within the industrialized world, you no longer, you, you could clean up the Thames, you could clean up the Hudson. And then, as I say, there was all this language about the new information society, sustainability, and so on. And unfortunately, a lot of the environmental movement believed this. So th this is what we really have to deconstruct now and understand what was actually going on. So you talked about the process of development and globalization, um, you know, as a broad process, which has been going on with a particular, uh, I guess, emphasis, what they call the neoliberal turn, whatever, over the last 30 years. And yet at the same time, you know, there are people who argue, Stephen Pinker amongst them, that things have never been better. But in particular, you know, from an economic perspective, that the, we've integrated these, these, these huge economies and in, in, into the global economy. And I don't know what the figures are, something like uh, 800 million Chinese have been brought from very extreme levels of poverty. Um, surely that uh, when you weigh that up, that's that that is a, a tremendous achievement. Yes, I mean, I think this is, you know, one of the big important bits of the propaganda and where I am a fairly unique expert in from, you know, ongoing experience, you know, can try to raise awareness about the fact that we really have to understand that these figures about economic growth and about prosperity have got to be examined from the ground up. So I can show you, you know, images from the three-story virtually mansions that people lived on uh, with land all around them, clean water, and all of this involved no money, no exchange of money. And I can show you the little hut, you know, a little slum that people have moved into. And suddenly in that little hut, people are earning maybe a dollar a day. And uh, on that piece of paper that boasts about the economic growth in China and India, that is, in many cases, what we're talking about. People having moved away from really, in many cases, thriving, healthy communities and, and healthy food, fresh air, clean water, into slums. But because in the slum they're earning a dollar a day, that is progress. They are wealthier. The local rural community is is zero. So they are the poorest of the poor. This is why a country like Bhutan is considered one of the poorest countries in the world. And this is, you know, the whole world needs to look at the reality of life in the villages of Bhutan and understand that the whole thing is a sham. Now, I have to also stress that what I was talking about in Ladakh and in rural Bhutan, I'm saying it's not perfect. There would be a way in which particularly using some renewable energy, using some glass in the windows. There would be ways in which I think most of us today would talk about a certain improvement in living standard by having a little more of a shield between humans and nature, you know, to protect yourself a bit more. It's probably something that most people would want. And if you look at it honestly, it's so clear that that could be achieved without destroying the earth, without breaking down the social fabric, without breaking up 
you know, families and communities the way the, the dominant system does. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. The, 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 yeah. the, these are very complex questions and tie in so many different dimensions. And I just want to come back to one question. To what extent, I mean, I've been in Bihar in India, and they're yeah. not living in three-story, you know, uh, houses with fresh air and these amazing conditions. And uh, yeah. uh, clearly, socioeconomic development is a very complex th- th- uh, uh, question. There are questions about local resources and, 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 and many things like that. So to what extent are these just particularly endowed uh, parts of the world where, you know, they have a, a relative uh, good balance in terms of the resources and, and and the local population so i guess what i'm trying to say is is to what extent is this generalizable i mean the fact that there are communities and areas of the world like ladakh that have you know that you've observed this to what extent do you think this is reflects a, a truer phenomenon well you see again you know there are examples of initiatives and projects in whether it's from Detroit in America or places like Bihar or Orissa, um, other parts of India, where by reversing the economic trend towards helping people to focus on restoring diversified healthy food supplies for themselves rather than being enslaved to monoculture for export and 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 rebuilding the community fabric of interdependence you can see you know human health and ecological health restored there are aboriginal communities here in australia where you know people the, the majority are dying around 40 of diabetes they've been pulled into this western system they've been fed a diet full of sugar and white carbohydrates and they are the majority have diabetes and are dying age 40. But there are projects where people are helping them to find their traditional diet, which is, you know, local animals and plants. And within a few, I mean, in some cases, within a few months, they're regaining their health. And having regained their health, they're also regaining energy to start planting gardens and taking more control of their lives. Now, this is, you know, this is what we're talking about. And whether you know wherever you look a process that is about restoring greater self-reliance and greater self-esteem which is also vital because you know uh, in many cases if you go to Bihar or in many villages in China now and in Africa people have been so sold on the idea that doing anything that involves physical work that involves growing food or building houses or being you know physically engaged in providing for their own needs that has been painted as backward primitive shameful you know people will literally say you know we're backward like animals you know we don't speak english there's been this huge propaganda making people feel ashamed of that so without a holistic understanding of this without the experiential knowledge that that i have and the people in my network you know where you actually are working on changing these images about what it is to be human, to be civilized. Um, Many of these projects won't get going, but with that broader understanding of what constitutes, you know, a real, as I say, self-esteem, self-respect, and greater self-reliance, there are everywhere little pockets of, of initiatives that for me, because I get information about them every day, I've 
you know, it nurtures me. It nurtures, you know, partly to know that we've helped to contribute to them, but also to just know that it's happening around the world is very, very encouraging. And 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 it and it's real. You know, it's not just um, some kind of fantasy. And it all basically represents localization in action. And yet, many of the people who take these initiatives, they're not thinking about oh, localization as opposed to globalization or diversified production versus monoculture for export, you know, and in being indebted to giant global banks. You know, they're not necessarily thinking about it from that point of view, but there's often just an intuitive reaction and there's an experiential knowledge where people see that, oh, you know, if I look after the soil a bit and if I start planting, you know, more diversified uh, production here it actually does better and then these things build on each other we believe that with um, you know a, an ability to disseminate this more systemic analysis it could help to strengthen and speed up the process very rapidly so Fergal I'm very grateful to you for doing a podcast and helping to get a different perspective out because that for us is the most important thing that needs to happen today Absolutely. It's very interesting. Oh, I'm getting feedback on myself there. Sorry. Absolutely, Helena. And you, you put your finger on um, a, a couple of really important points I'd like to discuss. And this question of scale is is something that's um, at the heart of this as well. Is is um, You talk about some of these uh, initiatives and communities that are, uh, in one way or another, embodying some of these uh, localized ideas and principles, and and more interdependent, connected to the the, the, the local environment, and so forth. Um, one of the, I guess, dominant uh, ideas or experience of the last thirty years is is the speed at which the the, the current economic model, the, the globalized world, has spread like virally. You know, you go sh- to shopping malls anywhere in the world, they're going to look the same, virtually with the same brands, and and these ideas underlying them have been very viral and very powerful. And uh, of course. Um, underlying the, the, the we, t- we talked at the beginning about some of the the, the the biggest problems we're facing this idea of this massive industrial engine that's just firing on all cylinders and 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 governments and corporations aspire to you know double the output over the next 30 years on and on and on this this massive engine which 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 seems to just self-reinforcing growth how do how do these local models how do they how do they uh, reach scale i mean we talk about the problems of scale but how do they go beyond or uh, how do you see that change happening they go beyond you know these examples to to embody uh, uh, to become the dominant way to become in, in their various manners and manifestations well first of all i want to say you know based on what you said that is really important that this dominant system which you know you were saying it's spread you know virally and so rapidly across the world that if we really analyze how it's spread, then we've got to look at the trade and investment treaties, the deregulation that's been going on in the name of spreading globalization. We've had a very specific, targeted effort on the part of interlinked banks and corporations to force governments into opening their doors for them. So the free trade treaties have been not about a relationship between countries, but much more about a relationship between interlinked global monopolies and 
countries. And, you know, in the later stages now, that has meant that countries are signing in black and white. We won't do anything that might impede your profit-making potential. So we agree we're going to be running our whole economy based on foreign investment and foreign involvement from foreign corporations. And if we try to raise the living wage or if we try to protect our resources and we thereby reduce your profit-making potential, you can take us to court and sue us. And then also we need to know that these courts are kangaroo courts. It's an unbelievable, you know, just a joke in terms of, of uh, you know, what, what we think of as democracy. It's just really quite unbelievable that this is happening. So I think that there's a very targeted, a very specific way in which we could actually slow down this crazy spread. And it would be by targeting precisely that area where countries are sitting around the table, negotiating treaties. And now with a more educated public, we'd be looking at how do we start re-regulating the global economic activity while also understanding that local trade and local production has been overregulated. And when I say local, you know, I mean regional in many cases, even sometimes involving trade between neighboring countries. It's not, it's not an absolute. It's a process of starting to prevent this insanity of importing and exporting identical products you know, flying apples across the world to be washed and flying them back again, importing and exporting butter and beef and so on, when we would most effectively reduce CO2 emissions by decentralizing or localizing this type of production. So on the one hand, we should be looking much more at how we can slow down this really monstrous overheated. So then it's so important that we understand that this expanding monocultural monolithic system has basically all the support of our so-called democratic institutions. So we do need to be looking at a political, collective way of starting to control that system. If we imagine that even a fraction of the resources, and by resources I mean the tools of regulations, it's also the tool of, of financing from the state for education, the development of infrastructure. It's a, so the, the role of the state in furthering this corporate global wealth creation, if even a fraction of those resources were used further the healthy goal of both ecological and human well-being and sustainability, we would be moving very rapidly in the right direction. Now, in the meanwhile, what does make me feel very encouraged and what I, you know, once we really get our head around the facts of how heavily subsidized and legalized this basically criminal um, handover to monopolies is and how even despite that small individual initiatives communities individual people all around the world are managing to create alternatives 
then all of these small and really everyday expanding localization initiatives incredibly inspiring you know they're they're happening despite the fact that they've had no support no media support no funding not even the foundation world where people are supposedly concerned with environmental and social well-being have put very much into supporting this movement it's beginning to change now but so there's there's huge potential for increasing their proliferation not to scale up individual initiatives but to have a model of replication and a multitude of smaller initiatives rather than uh, you know just one good thing expanding into a giant thing that is no now clearly in the west we've all embraced uh what you could call hyper consumerism but the consumer lifestyle um what about in the global south in the areas that you uh, are familiar with and have been researching to what extent uh, has this uh well you might call it a virus but uh to what extent have these ideas uh, become commonplace and at the heart of these of local societies well, I see again when you're close to the ground and you talk to these communities, and um, and I have had contact with lots of different ones because my book Ancient Futures and the film we made were translated into over forty languages between them, and so from communities all over the world, I got these voices telling me what you're describing in Ladakh is what is our story too. So I have felt very, um, you know, supported in, in what I'm saying. So what I'm saying is that people in rural communities, and particularly in the un, so-called less developed world, have been, you know, psychologically attacked with this image that in order to be a self-respecting human, You've got to live in the city. You've got to belong to the urban consumer culture. You've got to look as Western, as white-skinned, blue-eyed as possible. Otherwise, you're nobody. Now, that propaganda, which is also being sold in schools, is still being disseminated everywhere, and often through very well-intentioned Westerners who have simply not understood quite how damaging it is what they're doing. So, yes, at the moment... It'll take work to, you know, to discuss with people what's actually going on. And so, you know, our work has been, you know, in part, we've organized what we call reality tours to the West. Now, those reality tours have also involved things like people from non-Western countries spending three months on a course in Sweden where they were coming together with, with Westerners, you know, including Swedes, but also people in South America and around the world, and actually hearing from Westerners themselves why it was that they were working very hard to move away from this urban consumer culture, why they had worked for decades to move away from industrial toxic agriculture, to create an organic movement and pressure government for changes in policy. And so in hearing the truth about what's actually going on on the ground in the West, people in these in Bihar, in Chinese villages and so on, could relatively easily be persuaded of a different image. But there's far too little work along those lines. You know, at one yeah. point John Cleese and his his shrink at that time, someone named Robin Skinner, who became a friend of mine, 
we were talking about trying to do a film uh, that was based on a comic book we did called A Journey to New York, you know, where a Ladakhi, you know, goes off to what is supposed to be paradise and just so incredibly wonderful and then experiences the day-to-day life there and, you know, of course, ends up going back to Ladakh and explaining to them about the depression, about the hard work, about the toxic chemicals and the cancer and the, you know, the reality of life in the West that, um, you know, completely changes his mind about what Ladakh actually is. Uh, so we need, yeah, we need those films. So I recently spoke to a, 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 somebody who has been involved in global development at a pretty senior level for some decades, and he is now putting his, his emphasis and his focus on working rather rather than working at a global level, trying to negotiate things round the table, at working at a local level and trying to create a, a, a local economic system, working in a, in a small community um, in, in in the northern United States. And I'm just wondering, can you talk a little bit about why local economic systems? Some what are some of the, the key benefits? Why they're important? Why we should be looking at this? And, and maybe some lessons about how how to nurture these. Yeah, I mean, this is something that we've been working with in my organization, Local Futures, now for, well, actually for 40 years, because it became so obvious to me seeing the destruction that was going on in Ladakh with the advent of the global economic system that almost overnight, you know, created unemployment and led to massive increases in transport, CO2 emissions, use of plastic, refrigeration and uh, it was so obvious that as those distances grow we become more and more ignorant about our impact on other people and on the natural world. What happens when you shorten the distances is the opposite. You get feedback loops. You actually see the impact you're having and, and you often, if you live in a local community, you also get to live in the dirt you've created, the mess you've created. If you, you know, if you're creating massive pollution, or if you're massively exploiting other people, those things come back to you. So there are multiple social, psychological, ecological, and economic benefits from either, you know, protecting and building on traditional local economic systems or rebuilding them as now is being done in in the industrialized world. Uh, what we're seeing is, of course, um, as I said before, once you shorten the distances, it's the best thing you can do to reduce CO2 emissions. What people also need to understand is that when you shorten the distance between the farm or the forest and the market, you are creating economic pressure towards diversification on the land. And that is a healthy pressure because that's what nature is, diverse. And when you set up those closer links, you're actually stimulating farmers to move away from some vast monoculture, which goes against the need of the land, which requires all kinds of external inputs, pesticides, fertilizers, and larger and larger scale machinery, which in itself also destroys the soil and is, of course, costly and polluting. So what we're seeing in the local food movement worldwide 
is that the markets closer to the farm are creating, you know, flourishing ecosystems where farmers are producing a range of things and in doing so, creating space for wildlife. So there's also a term I love used at the grassroots, which is agri-wilding. So it's agricultural systems that also help with a type of rewilding. And I, I, you know, I wish we could be looking at images right now as I say these words, because when you actually see on the land and, and you know, you're actually there, it is so infinitely superior to the vast monocultures, which so clearly are deadly. And you can see with your own eyes that if you produce a range of things, ideally, you know, what they call stacking or syntropic farming, where you have trees and bushes and vegetables and some animals as well, the productivity is much higher. So the on this crowded planet, we could actually reduce the human ecological footprint and increase productivity simultaneously if we understood the importance of localizing and if we could get the political momentum to actually do it. We need to shift our regulation subsidies and taxes to favor this instead of favoring redundant trade and huge monocultures, which are in the food system it's fairly widely recognized now that the global food economy is the major contributor to climate change. I guess if you could call this a movement, uh, a localization movement, let's recall it that for the moment, how is that progressing? How, 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 how do uh, communities, towns, cities get involved and are we seeing this spreading or are are you know cities learning from other uh communities and and how is that all progressing well this is fascinating to me and very very hopeful because basically again as i said we've been at this for 40 years we've been working on every continent and it's so clear that yes, it is growing. I mean, particularly this sort of worldwide local food moment is growing everywhere you look. However, what in some ways is most inspiring is that it is growing without any support from the dominant media, no, no significant support from governments, certainly not national governments. Now there are some local and regional governments that are beginning to support these things. But almost all of it is just perseverance and goodwill from people and a sort of intuitive. Oh, sorry, are you there? Oh, yeah. A sort of intuitive and, um, you know, it's a response. Um, I mean, for instance, I mean, I know many instances where. You know, a wife who was despairing over her husband's depression and near suicide because he has a small farmer, was struggling and couldn't survive. The dominant economic path we have systematically destroys small farmers, small producers of every kind. And when it comes to farming, fishery and forestry, it's a disaster. So here was this small farmer in Devon, suicidal, and his wife had heard about how farmers' markets can completely change the formula so the farmer can actually get 100% of the consumer dollar instead of only 10% or even sometimes 5% of 
as they do in the supermarket. And so she struggled to set up a farmer's market and met with resistance everywhere. Even farmers don't really know about this. It all sounds a bit weird and unbelievable. The local shopkeepers don't like it. The local government was resistant. But when they finally got a market started, uh, on the on the first day, it was pouring with rain, and they thought it was all over. But no, even in the pouring rain in Devon, that market was enough of a success to then go from strength to strength. I'm not saying that every time these initiatives are taken up, but they always go from strength to strength. But I can tell you that there is a remarkable growth in these initiatives. They include things like um, food to hospitals, to prisons, to schools that is now being sourced locally. It includes um, some local governments actually supporting this and helping these schemes get off the ground. But it still needs a lot more help to turn it into something like, you know, 80% of the food consumed in most regions should come from there. And it needs the help of policy change. In the meanwhile, however, there, there are, as part of this whole localization movement, there are business alliances being uh, created where small independent local businesses link up together in order to then jointly educate the local community about the multiple benefits of supporting the local economy. Yes, yes. And I was going to, yes, ask on top of, I mean, what you're saying about the food is just fundamental and so important. I'm wondering, are there one or two elements that go, other elements that you would uh, highlight that go into a successful local economic economic system? I know, for example, there's there's, um, talk of uh, the the many um, growing number of uh, explorations, I guess, or experiments around local currencies. Um, So I'm just wondering if you could highlight maybe one or two uh, other uh, areas that you think are very interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to end. Uh, I want to say very clearly that we ourselves started two local currencies, one, one in Berkeley, one in Vermont, where we had small offices, and they both functioned uh, sort of on a small scale for about 10 years, but then uh, closed down. And our experience is that local currencies generally are not the way to start. They generally do not work that well. And it's quite remarkable because what happens with local currencies is that it requires quite a radical commitment on the part of members who join. And yet it doesn't fulfill fundamental needs. It ends up often being payment for babysitting or massage or or you know, something like that, which could actually be done just as a on, on a neighborly gift economy basis. Whereas with the local food initiatives, you know, you're talking about meeting a fundamental need. And wonderfully, these systems are being set up using the conventional currency. And once they're in place, if there is a crisis, a financial meltdown again, or climate crisis, these structures can continue and could then perhaps use a local currency. But for the time being, we wouldn't recommend local currencies as the next step. We urge everyone to start with food. It is so fundamental. We just have to remember there's nothing else that humans produce that every person needs three times a day. And that most fundamental of all products 
we're you know in the grips of an economic system where our governments are separating us further and further from the sources of our food. It's extremely dangerous. It's creating you know huge instability and poverty. But another um, after local food initiatives, what's very useful is local business alliances, where local businesses link up together to jointly carry out education campaigns and often also to transfer their knowledge from country to country, city to city. So from the grassroots, there is a certain amount of international networking. Although I have to say again that our work in that way is almost unique in that we are working on every continent. Generally speaking, I would argue that the localization movement suffers from operating from too local a perspective and with not enough uh, effort going into networking. But on the other hand, you can't, you know, you can't blame people. You're talking about people who are usually rushed off their feet and, you know, they have their hands full and certainly farmers do. You can't expect farmers to do it any more than that's very, that's very interesting. What does that look like, good networking? Is there one uh, example or part of the local uh, economic system movement that you, you, you think has worked well, that, has, has, that where, where you know, this broader alliance has brought benefits and other lessons from, from, from that? Well, I would certainly say that a very impressive alliance is Via Campesina, which is the biggest social movement in the world. It's a network of small farmers from across the world, started in South America. But most people have never heard of them because they started in opposition to the trade treaties. But what they stand for is what they call food sovereignty, the right for farmers to produce for their own communities and their own countries first and not be pressured into producing monocultures for export. And they are very aware how these global trade treaties are, you know, decimating healthy production. And they, so there are about between 200 and 300 million small farmers that belong to this network. Um, and the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies that a friend of mine in America started uh, has, I think, you know, reached out to incorporate about fifty thousand businesses, uh, but there, and there are other there are other initiatives that um, that are also fundamentally about localization, but they are not strictly speaking about the economy. They are, for instance, in schooling and education. There is a lot going on, trying to encourage by by encouraging more ecological knowledge in the local environment. They're actually beginning to build the knowledge systems that we need uh, for a, a genuinely sustainable future. We, uh, we are not aware of how destructive conventional schooling is, particularly in the non-industrialized world where children you know, in school learn nothing about their own resources, nothing about the skills for either for growing the food in their own climate, um, in their own terrain, or about building materials, any of, the, any of the skills and the knowledge that would allow them to produce what they need for food, clothing, and shelter from the region. That's, that knowledge gets 
killed off yes. through schooling. Yes, yes. Very, very, very interesting. One, one last question. Um, and I, I'm mindful of the importance of food, as you say, uh, just in so many different ways. Um, and I guess a large part of the global economy, the globalization is, 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 is consumer goods and our iPhones and all these kind of things. What potential is there for, um, if, if we don't, if we can't quite call it localization, maybe, uh, we, we call it deglobalization or something like that? Well, I think it's, first of all, absolutely essential that people start thinking about technology in, uh, again, using the big picture, looking at the minerals, the resources, where they come from, how they've been collected, by whom, and who benefits. And we have to get away from the myth that we wouldn't have airplanes or phones if we didn't have multinational deregulated corporations. We wouldn't need to allow businesses to be footloose and to essentially blackmail our governments in order to have perhaps collaboration internationally or in order to create some of these industrial products. But we really do need to be looking at their role in society. For right now, I mean, I would recommend that those of us who are using mobile phones and computers that we use these tools to urgently create a discussion about their impact on society, their impact on knowledge systems, and the tremendous centralization of power that's going on because of these technologies. They were marketed to us as these great, this great new information society that was going to be clean and, and egalitarian, and what we're seeing is really the opposite we're seeing, you know. So now people who are very idealistic and naive about the role of the mobile phone, about Amazon and Google and Facebook are beginning to understand that we're dealing now with vast monopolies. And so one of the discussions that's so badly needed in the economic world is looking at these global monopolies. We keep hearing about monopolies, but what we're usually talking about is national monopolies that are actually nothing like as monopolistic or as destructive as the global monopolies. Generally speaking, we do not have a global enough view of what's going on, either in terms of what globalization actually consists of, who's running it, who's benefiting, what's it doing around the world. On that side, we don't have enough global knowledge and we don't share enough information about it. On the other side, we have almost no knowledge about this globally emerging grassroots bottom-up movement that I call localization. Broadly speaking, when you look at all its various dimensions, it is about localizing in the sense of place-based businesses, more human-scale relationships. And that is extremely positive, extremely hopeful. And I just think with more global information about both ends of the spectrum, people would have greater clarity about what really does support genuinely sustainable ways of living, genuinely satisfying ways of living. You know, you've seen this every day we hear more about the isolation and unhappiness that's coming from the world of the screen and what's happening to young people. 
even there, we don't know enough about hikikomori in Japan. Have you heard of hikikomori? No, I mean, hikikomori, you know, it's a, it's a term that's been coined quite a while ago in Japan for roughly a million young men who refuse to ever leave their bedroom. And most of it, you know, it's associated with the fear that comes from the pressure of this highly competitive, urbanized technological economy and the fear of failure. And, you know, they're, they're locked in their rooms. And um, now more and more, you know, the, the, even in England and America, there's an understanding of how addictive the screen is and how much it's um, associated with loneliness, depression, anxiety. So when we look at that bigger picture, it's really clear that as human beings, we evolved in intergenerational communities, more connected to other people. We evolved connected to animals, to plants, to the living world around us. And this isolation, this separation from life, from other humans, particularly intergenerational contact, is so important to reduce the anxiety and stress that comes from the peer group pressure. Uh, that's a phenomenon, you know, in, in the modern world. I'm just mindful of the time. I was just going to ask you what, what was next uh, for you uh, on the horizon, where you're focusing your energy and what, what's, what projects and what, what you're doing. Well, we are, one of the next projects is to do a film that focuses just on food. You know, it, it shows the broad implications of making this shift in the food system. Um, because we're talking about also, as I said, psychological, if you like, spiritual healing, as well as economic and ecological benefits. We are continuing with a series of conferences around the world. We're getting requests from... Yeah, from all over the world, because it's a very good way for people to gather in the region, to meet each other, and then to connect and collaborate around this bigger picture with greater clarity about what the dominant global economy means and what is happening at the grassroots. Overall, people find it you know, incredibly eye-opening and inspiring and it's leading to an activism that links people together rather than the frightening divisiveness that's growing now, you know, between you know, men and women, between immigrant and insider, between uh, rich and poor. I mean, there's a, there's a divisiveness growing now that's very vicious. And the bigger picture actually helps people to focus on this economic systemic shift that has benefits in all those spheres, you know, whether your big concern is climate or, or poverty or fascism, actually, with any of these concerns and more, the big picture and the shift towards economic localization has a beneficial effect across the board. So we're, we're continuing these conferences, for, we're continuing with educational materials. We do online webinars and workshops. And um, we, yeah, we hope that the listener will be interested. Go to our website, localfutures.org, and where you can also be inspired from our Planet Local series, where we have a number of examples of these very positive and inspiring initiatives 
happening around the world. Well, I wish you the very best of success. That's a very uh, noble uh, and, and, and terribly important work you're doing. And thank you so much for sharing all your insights and uh, work that you're doing uh, today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.